Wow. Thank you, Lord. If you have a Bible, get it out. John chapter 8. If you need a Bible, there is one in a seat back somewhere nearby you. Uh, but we turn to God's Word now. Uh, what an awesome privilege we get to turn to God's Word. John chapter 8. I, um, I grew up in the church. I've told you that many times if you've come to our church. Grew up in a good home that exposed us to the gospel. And uh, the church I grew up in, it invited an author to come speak. And I had never heard of, I had never heard of this author before he came. And uh, they were reading off a couple of his titles. And there was a title of a book that he had written that just grabbed me. I don't know, I was 16, 17, 18 years old. But it just grabbed me and it held me. And the title of the book was this, What's So Amazing About Grace? Why it grabbed me was because at that time in my life, I agreed with the title. What I mean is I, I had grown up in the church and by that time had heard countless, maybe hundreds of sermons about the grace of God. I, I knew that the grace of God was a good thing. I knew I wanted it, but every time we sang the most famous song ever written, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. If I was honest with you and what I wasn't willing to say to anyone else at that time, but when I saw that title, I went, yeah, there's so many other things I'm way more amazed by than the grace of God. I lay that question before us to start. What's so amazing about grace? My hope for us today is that we get to see what's so amazing about His grace. Not just hear about it. Not just me lay out 10 points of why his grace is amazing. I pray we see it. And how we're going to see it is by looking at a story that begins the eighth chapter of the gospel of John. This this is how we're going to see it. And I pray as we look at this story, we'll understand and be caught up and be truly amazed by how gracious and merciful our Savior Jesus really is. Amen. What we're going to see is a story of Jesus' interaction with a woman who's been caught in adultery. She will literally be dragged before him humiliated in the most central place of the community, but beyond humility, or beyond, beyond humiliated, she, she will find her life to be at stake. How does Jesus handle this woman? What will Jesus say to her in her sin? Will condemnation rain down from him, or will grace abound? And importantly for us, 
it answers the question for us today, how does Jesus handle sinful sinners? It's a pertinent question for us because the one who preaches to you today is a sinful sinner. And there may be a few of us others in the seats as well. How does Jesus look upon us? How does Jesus meet us in our sin? Down through history, we don't even know her name. She is simply the woman caught in adultery. I embarrassingly say before you, what if I was described down through history of the worst of the worst thing I did on the worst of my nights? What if you were described down through history of the worst of the worst that you did on the worst of your nights? And even as I say that, what if that unwelcome guest called shame has come knocking again to reclaim territory in your mind and heart you had kicked him out of long ago? We need to see how Jesus meets us in our sinfulness. Amen. Because when we see his grace, it changes everything. Today's message is a message of grace. Now, let me say a few things up front. Grace isn't only something we need in order to come to Jesus. We do need his grace for that, amen? But this message is also for those who have already come to Jesus because we need his grace daily, do we not? This is a message of his grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. God, help us see it. Let it not just be with the hearing of the ear, but with the seeing of the eye. Jesus, just as we were singing, we want to behold you. We want to see <clears throat> the mob of shame walk away. And we want to be left today face to face with you, King Jesus. In a real, tangible life-changing way. Lord, will you do that in our midst? We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now, before we get into this story that begins John chapter 8, you, if you look down at your Bible, you're going to find a note from the translators of our Bible, and that note you will find uh, only two places in the New Testament, at the end of the Gospel of Mark and at the beginning of John chapter 8 right here. And the note says this, the earliest manuscripts do not include chapter 7, verse 53, through chapter 8, verse 11. Now, I want to do two things before we get, get into this story. I want to answer two questions. That note should lead us to answer two questions. The first question, can I trust my Bible? And the second question, can I trust this passage? 
Okay, let's, let's deal with the first question. We believe here that the Bible is the very word of God. Inerrant, without error in its original writings, and completely authoritative. As believers, we submit our lives to what God has made clear to us in his word. This gets to be the authority. So it doesn't matter when I come up to a thing in life, what I think about it, it matters what God's word says about it. Now, how do we know that this Bible we're holding and is laying on our lap here is an accurate translation and transcription down through time of what God wrote in the originals? We know that, and we have this Bible we have, by the passing down of manuscripts. Now, manuscripts, real simple, handwritten copies of the biblical text. And so the original writings of the Bible were passed down through time by these handwritten copies of the biblical text. We call those manuscripts. And now, this is the way we read today any ancient text. So how many of you in school read Homer's uh, Odyssey or Iliad? How many of you are like, I don't even remember if we read that? How many of you are like, I actually never completed one book and still graduated, right? Like, yeah, yes, lots of unashamed hands on that one. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Um, this is the way we read Homer's works. This is the way we read any ancient text. Now, I want to put a chart on the screen, and the purpose of this chart is to give us such great confidence in this Bible we're holding in our hands. The Bible is the undisputed ancient text champion of the world, okay? And, and what you'll see here on this, the, this chart very quickly are a list of ancient works the earliest manuscript that we found of them in the gap of time between when those manuscripts were written and when the original was written, when those manuscripts were copied and when the original was written. You also have on the far side the total number of manuscripts that we have of these ancient works. So what this means is the closer you find a manuscript to its original writing, the higher likelihood that it's, that it's accurately copied the original. And the more manuscripts that you have of something, the more you can compare those manuscripts to, to know whether we have an accurate understanding of the original. And so I want you to look at what we have here. The New Testament, we have manuscripts within 30 years of when the originals were written. Compare that to the hundreds of years of all the other ancient works that are out there. And the total number of manuscripts, we have 5,856 total manuscripts. All of this to say, when you come to a note in your Bible, end of chapter Mark, beginning of John, and go, whoa, what does this mean? Can I trust my Bible? The answer is yes. Of all of this book, there's only two places the translator notes, hey, we need to make this note about the manuscripts. Now, what do we do with this passage? I'm preaching this passage for four reasons. Don't write them down. Let me just give them to you. The vast number of manuscripts of the Gospel of John include this passage in it. Secondly, there's agreement among scholars that this event happened in the life of Jesus. Thirdly, the translators leave this passage in uh, with this note, and they don't make it a footnote of the translation. And then fourthly, this communicates important theological truths of who Jesus is that is in line with what we have in the rest of the Gospel of John and the rest of the Gospels. Thus, I preach it. Amen. And thus, let us hear the word of God. John chapter 7, verse 53 into John 8. They went each to his own house, 
But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Now, we have to understand the setting for what's about to happen. Because if we don't understand the setting, we might miss a bit of this interaction Jesus is about to have. Jesus has come back to what we're told, the temple, early in the morning. And he, he probably, like most other teachers of his day, would find a spot in the outer courts of the temple. And, and, and the teachers then would have students that come a, a, a around them. And the teachers would teach their students sitting there in the outer courts of the temple. The temple, as, as you very well know, or even if you're newer to the faith, can figure out, it was the center of religious life. But in this day, and for first century Jews, it wasn't just the center of religious life. It was like the center of life, the center of community life. And so Jesus is sitting in the outer courts. There's people now who have gathered around him, and he's teaching. And now his teaching is about to be abruptly interrupted. Verse 3. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, teacher... This woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses, now the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. And now a really important question. So what do you say? Can you imagine? Can you imagine being her? It tells us, caught in the act of adultery. Ripped from wherever she was. Drug to the middle of religious life and community life. Placed in the midst, drugged by these, by these religious leaders. Placed in the midst of a teacher teaching a group of people and the religious leaders saying, what do you say, Jesus? The law of Moses, Deuteronomy chapter 22, commands us to stone such a woman. Can you imagine the humiliation? But beyond humiliation, the terror of your life being held in the hands of stone-wielding men who are calling for your life because of your sin. Personalize it a bit. Who could stand up under being drugged from the worst thing we ever did and placed and paraded at the center of a group of people with them calling for our life. Who could stand up under that? You want to know what the worst part of it is? They don't even care about her. And they don't even really care about her sin. This is all a setup. This, verse 6, this they said to test him, 
that they might have some charge to bring against him. There's the motive. All of this is a test. All of this is a ploy. The thought of them is if, if Jesus says, no, let her go free, we got him on violation of Deuteronomy chapter 22. But if Jesus actually says, yeah, go ahead and stone her at a place like this, we are going to cut all of this talk of this compassionate Messiah who's come. And they've, they've, they've set her there, caught in her sin, in the midst. And they've said, Jesus, what do you say? And it's fascinating what Jesus does. Middle of verse 6. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Jesus, she's been caught. She's guilty of adultery. The law of Moses says she's to be stoned for this. What do you say? And Jesus doesn't even say a word at first. He bends down and he begins to write something in the ground. Now, what do you write? I, we, we don't know. The, the amount of scholars who write page after page after page of what Jesus could have written, I'm like, what are you doing? If God wanted us to know what he wrote, he would have told us what he wrote. We, we don't know what he wrote, but we do know what he said. Here, I mean, here she is. Literally at the mercy of religious leaders. Here's the mom, stone in hand. Give us the word. We're ready to go. Jesus says this. Verse 7. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. Let him who is without sin be the first to throw the stone. You know what Jesus is doing here? He says, I see your Deuteronomy 22 and I raise you a Deuteronomy chapter 13 and chapter 17 in Leviticus 24. What, what do I mean by that? Jesus knows what the law of Moses says. And Jesus knows that sin is deserving of punishment. And so what Jesus is doing is he's saying, those who have witnessed the sin and who are not guilty themselves of the same sin, cast the first stone. You see, John chapter 8 verse 7 isn't just saying, if you don't have any sin in general, then cast the first stone. Jesus is calling out the religious leaders to say, if you have never committed adultery like this woman has, may you cast the first stone. 
and it cuts them to the heart. They drug a woman into the midst of the temple to shame her for her sin. And Jesus flips it right on their head and they walk away with their head hung in their shame for their sin. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Verse 8, and once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one. And then John gives us this note, beginning with the older ones. The ones who had more life experience knew exactly what Jesus was saying. The ones with a little more life experience knew the very thing they had drugged this woman before that Jesus for were the very things that they themselves had committed as well. And so if you can see it, from the time they drag her in, wielding stones, they're, they're like this. They're like, what do you say, Jesus? What do you say? To Jesus begin to speaking to them. Let he who is without, the, without sin cast the first stone. From here to here to here. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. Now look at this. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Here it is. We're back to where we were at the top. What is Jesus going to say to her? How will Jesus handle her? Because there is one man left standing in front of her, and it was a man who had never had an adulterous motive in his heart, had never had an adulterous thought in his mind, and had never committed an adulterous act with his hand, who would have been perfectly just to punish her for her sin. What does he say? Jesus stood up, verse 10, and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one, what's, your, what's the word in your Bible? Has no one? Has no one condemned you? Do you notice what Jesus said there? He didn't say, did you do it? Are you guilty? Were they right? He knew what she had done. She knew what she had done. And he looks at her and he says, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Condemnation means to damn. It means to punish. It means to destroy. In its weightiest sense, 
Condemnation carried with it the damning to hell for those disobedient to God's will. And the mob is gone. The rocks have been dropped. And she in her sin is there with a perfect Savior, the one who's never sinned, the one who's not guilty of any of it. And he says, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Verse 11, she said, no one, Lord. And then the sweetest words to sinners' ears that could ever be heard. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on sin no more. Why could Jesus say that? Because a woman that was drugged before him, having truly committed adultery and been guilty of it, could be, could be let go free from her stoning because the man that was now standing in front of her was about to go to a cross for her sin shortly after this. Free from the condemnation, the damning, the punishment of her sin because of the sacrifice that this man she was looking at was going to make on behalf of her sin. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Amen? Amen. Neither do I condemn you. But then an invitation, an invita- a gracious invitation. It wasn't that Jesus was light on her sin. He invites her to go and from now on sin no more, to leave her sin. This is how a gracious Savior meets sinful sinners. Now, from this story, I want to speak to three groups of people. I think this story speaks to three groups of people. Three groups of people sitting in the room here today. The first group I'll call the group that needs to embrace the grace. The second group, the group that needs to drop the rock. And the third group, the group that needs to leave the sin. Embrace the grace, drop the rock. Leave the sin. Let me speak to those first who need to embrace his grace. I don't know what you believed about God walking in here. I don't know what you believed about Christianity walking in here. You you may have walked into this church today, and you're not a Christian. You've never believed in Jesus. And frankly, your views of God are that God would just come get you for your sin. Some of you are sitting here today and you're thinking, I I just need to get some things right before I come to Jesus. And, and, And I just lovingly say that is so wrong. Some of you, some of you are, are in here today thinking, I just need to better myself. I just need to, I need to, I need to better myself in some ways. But I want you to notice what Jesus did not do when this woman was brought before, before him in her sin was give her a lecture on self-improvement. 
He showed her himself. Some of you are in here and you're going, I just got to stop some things. I got to clean some things up. I got to stop something before I come to Jesus. And I just, you don't have the power to stop. You and I both know it. We've tried to stop. We don't have the power to stop. Today, I'm pleading with God and I've been pleading with God all week to show you who need to embrace his grace that no matter what mess you feel you have made of your life. A gracious Savior named Jesus willingly and joyfully and graciously steps into the mess you've made of your life, throws you over his shoulder and says, you're mine. Your sin has separated you from him. You can't make yourself right with him on your own. But God invites you to himself the moment you believe on his son, Jesus Christ. Washed from your sin, robed in Christ's righteousness. And that can happen for you today if you will call on the name of the Lord to be saved purely by his grace. Embrace his grace and never be the same. The second group are those who equally as much need to be delivered by the grace of God today. And the second group is what I'll call those who need to drop the rock. Religious leaders wielding stones drug this woman before Jesus Stones clenched in hand, ready to heave condemnation upon her until she died for her sin. Where do some of you who have drunk so freely of the grace that Jesus has poured out on you need to drop rocks of condemnation you have been holding towards others? Don't misapply what I'm saying. What this doesn't mean is that if loving brothers and sisters in Christ come to you and seek to convict you for sin that is there in your life, that is the loving grace of God. That is not condemnation. That's conviction. And conviction's a gift to the Spirit. Condemnation is to damn. To say, I want her destroyed. I want him punished. Where might some of us be walking in here today seeking to heave stones of condemnation on people who are committing the very same sins that we are? Drop the rock. Where might we be walking in here Hoping condemnation finds a fellow believer in whom Jesus has already declared there is therefore now no condemnation over. Drop the rock. Where if if you're honest, you just walk in here still hating someone. I hate them. Drop the rock. 
How can we who have drunk so freely from the fountain of his grace cling to stones of condemnation towards another? Today, today is the day. Boom. Drop the rock. Embrace the grace. Drop the rock. Now, leave the sin. And one of the most beautiful lines that we have in what I would argue all of the, the Bible, Jesus declares there is no condemnation on you for your sin and invites and leave that sin. So he, he, he's not punishing her for her sin. He's not damning her, but he's also inviting her by his grace, by his grace. He's inviting her away from her sin. He noticed something. He does not shame her out of her sin. He graces her out of her sin. For many of us in the room here today, you know Jesus Christ. You have bowed the knee and bowed your heart to him as Savior. And you know what Scripture tells us, that in Christ, sin no longer has power over us. On this side of heaven, sin does still have an allure and it tempts us. But in Christ, sin does not have power over us. The day you trusted Christ, he swung the prison cell of your sin wide open. He loosed the shackles off your, off your ankles and off your wrists. And he said you are free. And some of us have just decided to still sit in the cell. We want Jesus and our sin too. And today, Jesus is inviting us to something by his grace. You know it, and I know it. The sin we cling to in the darkest corners of our, in our, of our heart is not bringing us a more vibrant life, but it's a way of death, and we know it. Today, he is inviting you out of the cell by his grace. He is not shaming you. He's gracing you. If our change today is rooted in shame for what we've done, we will be like a dog that returns to its vomit right when we leave here. If instead we like this woman, will see that the mob of shame is gone, the stones have been dropped, and we're left just face-to-face -face with Jesus. We're just left face-to-face -face with Jesus. And he's standing outside the prison cell of our sin, and with a smile on his face, he's inviting us out. Come on, Brock, come on. He's inviting us by his grace. Brock, there's no condemnation anymore because you're in me. Now I'm inviting, come on, come out. Leave by, by his grace. Leave the life of perpetual lying. Leave it. By his grace, leave your sin of self-righteousness. By his grace, leave the bitterness that you're harboring. By his grace, leave your sin of anxiety. By his grace, leave your stronghold of pornography. By his grace, walk out 
in the freedom of his grace and leave behind your secret drinking or using to cope with whatever it is. By his grace, leave your outbursts of anger. By his grace, he invites us away from our sin today. Never to go back. Neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. Now, church, we must respond to this. Do you agree? Like, re really, do you agree? We, like, we can't, Lord, help us. We can't just hear his word again and again and not respond to what he's doing in our heart. Right away, Monday morning, I got into this text. I had planned to preach way more into John 8, and the Lord just said, no, 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 just this story, and called, called him to respond at the end. It was so clear. And so this isn't a normal way we end, but I'm just going to call us to respond to what God's doing here. If you would, just stand, stand right where you're at. Just stand right where you're at. And I just want to walk through these different groups that I believe this story speaks to the heart of where his grace can free us today. And I just want to say to you, if you're here and you need to embrace the grace of Jesus Christ, you have never called on his name to be saved from your sin. You have never believed in him. You've never seen that by grace through faith, period, you can be made whole and right with your creator, God. The Bible says if you call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. I just want to invite you right now. Would you just come to the front? Would you just kneel right up front here? If today you need to embrace the grace that Jesus Christ offers you and you need to give your life to him today, just come up front right now and kneel. There's all sorts of excuses why you wouldn't. You're like, praise the Lord, I sat in the middle of the aisle today. They'll move for you. Or run them over. They'll move for you. The greatest hindrance is fear. We go, I don't want people to see what God's doing in me. The reality is when God is so moving a work like this in your heart, you don't care what anyone thinks. You don't even care what you think anymore. So right now, today, today is the day of salvation. Don't wait for tomorrow. You come and you bow your knee to Jesus as Lord. Right up front, come and kneel. I'm gonna to speak to you today. If you need to be freed by the grace of Jesus from the rocks of condemnation you came in clinging to. That right now the spirit of God has so shown you the grace that he has lavished upon you and you have been clinging so firmly to stones of condemnation. You hope to heave and hurt someone else. We just drop, we just come forward right now. Would you just come forward right now and say, Lord, today I'm dropping the rock? Or would you come forward right now and kneel and say, Lord, I don't even have the power to drop the rock. I'm coming forward and you need to, you need to rip this rock from the clenches of my fist. Would you just come forward right now and drop the rock today? Just come and kneel. Say, I'm not holding that anymore. meet with the Lord and hear from him.
And today, listen to me, today is the day, man of God. Today is the day, woman of God. You know that you know Christ. But man, you've wanted to keep some specific sins with you. Man, you've wanted, instead of Christ calling you out of that cell by his grace, you wanted Jesus to just come in that cell with you and sit right there. Today is the day he invites you by his grace to leave your sin. And he's not shaming you out of it. He's inviting you out of it. In his grace, would you just come and say, okay, Jesus, I surrender it. I'm done. I'm done with it. And even as you're meeting with him down here right now, you're probably saying, but I'm not even sure of myself. I can't be sure of myself. Jesus, you'll have to take it. would we see his grace in a way that calls us beckons us invites us to himself just let the Lord meet us here